0: I invite you to take your Bible and open to Isaiah chapter 43, and we'll let the boys and girls up through age 8 to be dismissed. If you would like them to go, parents, we have a class for them, or you can keep them in here as well. Isaiah 43 is our text this morning. There are two great polarities in this book, and really in all the work of God, judgment and comfort. Ruin and redemption, law and gospel, justice and mercy, and every single one of us here in this mor- here this morning relates to God in one of those two ways, either in terms of His exacting justice or in terms of His undeserving mercies. And this passage is here to explain why and how that will be. As most of you know who've been here with us for the last, well, what has it been, a couple of years, uh, going through Isaiah together, the first half of this book, the first 39 chapters, are taken up by and large with the the justice and the judgment of God. And the second half of the book, in which we find ourselves this morning, beginning in chapter 40, moving onwards, is largely taken up with grace. Grace mercy, and the word of gospel comfort for God's people. This is not too unlike the way the book of Romans unfolds, is it? Where you have the first two and a half, three chapters that are taken up with the judgment of God upon the sinfulness of wicked humanity, and then the second part of the book unfolding in chapter 3 and on to 4 through 11 all unfold the gracious purposes of God the mercies of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know that judgment has its place, both in terms of the lost, in exalting the justice and the holiness of God, but in terms of those who would be saved to drive them to a place of the sense of their need for salvation. This is what this Word does. When God brings His judgment and His mercy together, that is where people are converted. When they feel the weight of the condemnation of God resting upon their shoulders, and then they are freed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's where transformation takes place. And so we are working our way here through what might be called the Gospel of the Old Testament for this book of Isaiah is so precious in unfolding both these truths in righteousness and in mercy this mercy and grace of god in the gospel is described in chapter 43 that we looked at the last couple of weeks in terms of a new thing and if you look at chapter 43 verse 19 you'll see the first mention of this here in the text in front of us behold i am doing a new thing And three times in Isaiah chapters 40 and beyond, the Lord speaks this way, beginning in chapter 42, verse 9, with the call of God's great servant, the servant of the Lord. This is a new thing, he says. And then in chapter 48, verse 6, he says, From this time forth I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. And in chapter 42, God's new people are called to sing a new song. And in chapter 62, they're called by a new name. And in chapter 65, they dwell in a new heavens and a new earth. But in this section, the one in front of us, Isaiah is moved by the Spirit of the Lord to bring together in stark juxtaposition both the judgment of God and the mercy of God. In fact, to bring them together in such a startling way as to even be puzzling at first glance. I want you to see just a, a highlight of each of these. In verse 28 of chapter 43, verse 28, notice how the verse ends, that God will deliver Jacob and Israel over to utter destruction. And then if you go to chapter 44, verse 4, it says that the descendants of Jacob will spring up like willows by flowing streams. Now, I, wanna, I want you to puzzle over that for a minute. How can this be? This is almost a contradiction on the surface. It's like, how can you have utter destruction and yet salvation? How can you have justice and judgment upon these people and yet have mercy and grace upon them? And of course the question becomes very personal when we ask, how is it that you or I can experience the one instead of the other? Or perhaps I could frame this same question in the terminology of Paul's letter to the Romans. How is it that God can be just and be the justifier of the ungodly? Do you feel the tension there? This is a real tension that is only solved by the the wondrous wisdom of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what's unfolded in this passage in such a beautiful way. I want you to see that this passage is characterized by a tension. There's a tension here all the way through. And we're going to look from verse 22 in chapter 43 all the way down to chapter uh, 44, verse 5. And there's a tension here in this text between the judgment of God and the blessing of God. So, in chapter 43, verses 22 to 24, that's characterized by which of those? Condemnation or blessing? Condemnation, that's right. But then in verse 25, you have this unexpected interjection of mercy. But then when you come to verse 26, 27, 28, boy, you come right back to the judgment and the reason for the judgment of God. But then you turn to the the very next verse in chapter 44, verse 1, and he comes again to give them the comfort of grace. So again, how can this be? And I'm just titling the sermon this morning, God's Judgment and Mercy Explained. I'm doing so because there are two key words that indicate a reason or an explanation, and I'll point them out as we work our way through the text. There is a tension here between, on the one hand, the judgment of God, and on the other, the mercies of God. And it begins with an indictment, a judgment upon the people of Israel in chapter 43, verses 22 to 24. Take a look again at our text. Now, really back into verse 21. After saying that God has, the end of verse 21, formed Israel, quote, that they might declare my praise, then his next breath in verse 22, he says, yet they did not call upon me. You did not call upon me, O Jacob, but you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not brought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. The indictment of Israel and Judah. And that judgment can be summarized in the end of verse 22 this way. You have been what? You have been weary of me. The Israel of Isaiah's day made up of a great number really of people whose hearts were hardened toward God. And yet, at the same time, they were still going through the motions of religion. They were still offering the sacrifices, still keeping the holy days, still making their prayers. Chapter 1 of this book makes that clear. But, for these people, it had begun the whole worship of Jehovah had become tedious and tiresome and wearying to them and so even though they 've technically been still, as the whole book makes clear, they 've still been bringing their sacrifices and offerings. The Lord says, "You have not honored me in these sacrifices by bringing sacrifices it's like you haven't brought sacrifices at all because if you don't bring sacrifices with the true heart of." Faith and trust and submission and dependence. You haven't brought a sacrifice. You've just gone through empty ritual. And that was his charge against these people. Malachi, the Lord makes a similar charge. Malachi chapter 1, the Lord says, From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised, and when you say, what a weariness this is. What a weariness this is. That was the testimony of the people of Judah. They were bringing the Lord, sacrifices half-heartedly, just sort of trying to meet the bare minimum requirements, just trying to scoot along so that outwardly they were in conformity with the, with the people, and, uh, and yet their hearts, the Bible says, were far from the Lord. In the end of verse 23, you'll take a look. The Lord specifically denies that the fault is with Him. Right? You see what he says in the end of the verse? I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You're weary of the worship, but it's not, it's not what I have done. The gospel doesn't saddle you with demands that must be kept in order to be pleasing to God. It frees you in order to serve the Lord and worship Him from your heart. This is, this is, this is true religion. It's not merely conforming to the rules of the church or the expectations of believers or running through the rituals of of weekly worship. It is serving the Lord from a transformed heart. So the Lord says, it's not me. I have not wearied you. The fault is not with me. Rather, look at the end of verse 24 now. The end of verse 23, he says, it's not me that has wearied you. Rather, verse 24, you have burdened me. With your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. What an incredible thing for someone to become so stubbornly sinful that the Lord would say, You have wearied me. You have tried my patience. Like a father or a mother who looks at their child and they says they say, Son, I have been patient with you. I have been long-suffering. But you have tried me and I am at the end of my rope with you. This is what the Lord says about these people. And friends, I know from sad experience that there are people who gather together in this assembly to worship the Lord week by week. And yet some of them sitting there are going out and living according to the flesh Monday through Saturday. And their hearts are being hardened toward God. And it's happening little by little by little. And when you come and you sit here, I, I'm, not always, I'm not able to tell Maybe I look out and I see you mumbling the words of the hymn or enduring the prayers or sitting there and getting through a sermon. But I wonder always and I pray about this is there a man or woman or boy or girl who comes week by week like that? On the inside, there's such a A hardness, a giving themselves to sin, that they've come to the point where they're really weary of it all, and where they're really in danger of wearying the Almighty God to even show them patience anymore. I just want to tell you, brother, sister, listen. The Lord will be gracious those who renounce their sin and who run to Him. But those who harden their hearts against Him will try His long-suffering patience. Do you remember the words of Jesus who said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I tell you to do? Maybe that's Him through my voice right now, talking to you. Why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I tell you to do? I am not your Lord. Oh, I pray you, by God's grace, bow your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Submit your way of thinking and your way of acting and your life and your sin. Submit it all to Him. Lest you become given over to the utter destruction of the judgment of God there is only one sacrifice that the Lord wanted from those people only one sacrifice with which he would not that he would not despise and that is a broken and a contrite heart and i want to tell you that sacrifice the lord will receive all day long bless his holy name bless his grace those who know and freely confess their sin, He's gracious. But such was the state of Judah. Their weariness of the Almighty, that they became a weariness to their God. But then in verse 25, all right, take a look at verse 25, and this is just an astounding change of tone. Here is an unexpected change interjection of mercy and i want to ask how is this why is this here for the next breath out of his mouth is this i i am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and i will not remember your sins mercy in the middle of this indictment there is this interjection of mercy and and i want you to see first of all how the mercy is described He describes that mercy in terms of God's very nature, right? You see that in the text? Look at it again. I am He. And there's really an emphasis here in the Hebrew. I, I am this kind of God, the God who shows mercy by blotting out transgressions. Can you imagine something being blotted out completely? I mean, like you take a dish and wipe it clean as if there was no... Dirt and stain there, no gr- grease and grime at all. It's just clean and fresh and it can start brand new. Who can do that but God? He's a God who can blot out your transgressions. Let me tell you, the stain of your sin goes all the way down to the very depths of your nature, but God can blot it out. He's a God who transforms even the nature of sinners. Then also, he says, I am the God who will not remember your sins. Who will not, what? Who will not remember, who, who chooses never again to recall the sins of those who are forgiven. I mean, who can do that but God? I mean, think about that, really, in comparison to other people. When you sin against someone else, you commit a grave harm to them, you breach that trust. You go to them humbly. You say, friend, brother, sister, I've sinned against you. And the Lord has broken me about it and I ask you to forgive me. And they are moved with the grace of God and say, listen, I do forgive you. But you know, even after you walk away from an experience like that, you have a sense, don't you, that that things are all back to normal, that no matter how gracious that person has been, that they can never fully forget that deep harm that has been caused, that breach of trust and hurt that that has caused, right? You 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 understand what I'm saying? But here is a God, here is a God who says, I will recall your sins no more. I will never again bring them to mind. And I'm telling you, our God is not plagued like we are by these thoughts that just run across His head. God is what He thinks. And He chooses not to put His mind on your sin. They will not cross His mind. This is the greatness of the forgiveness that is in Christ Jesus. But there is also in this text, verse 25, a reason for that mercy. Right? You see it? What is it? Or I will blot out your transgressions for my own sake. I want to remind you that there is no reason at all for mercy outside of God Himself. There is nothing in us that draws out the compassion and mercies of God. There is nothing outside of God. It is His free choice to be merciful to sinners that is at the heart of salvation. And his purpose is within himself. Listen, the Bible tells tells us, and I I so freely acknowledge this to the Lord so often, Lord, in me that is in my flesh there is no good thing. There's nothing in me that merits your kindness in any way. Forgiveness is attributable only to God's name. Who is it? What is who is he? Remember that when Moses was called before the Lord to behold His glory, the Lord said, I will show you My glory by declaring to you My name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, right? This is the Lord. This is who He is in Himself. And His purpose is, in showing that grace is to display the glory of His mercy for all eternity. He is the Lord. There is nothing inherent in us and there there was nothing inherent in Israel that called for God's grace and God's forgiveness. And if there's any question about that at all, then the Lord puts it to a challenge in the next verse, verse 26. He says to His people, to Israel, those who name his name. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case that you may be proved right. It's as if he looks at them and says, What nation can declare its own righteousness before me? And I ask you that today. What person, what person among us can set forth the case of his own righteousness? Can you? Does not your conscience condemn you as your accuser? Does not the very law of God charge you with being a transgressor? And now the Lord lays out the reason for his condemnation. Just like you had the reason for his mercy in verse 25, you have the reason for his judgment in verses 26 and 27 and following. He says, your first father sinned. And your mediators transgressed against me. Therefore, there's another reason word, right? Therefore, I will profane the princes of the sanctuary and deliver Jacob to utter destruction and Israel to reviling. The first father of that people, in an ultimate sense, is really the first father of us all, right? Who is who? Adam. In Adam, we all sinned, fallen from the glory to which we were to attain, and we have inherited Adam's nature as a sinner and his guilt. This is probably, though, a reference to the immediate father of these people, who is named in verse 22 and again at the end of this section in verse at the end of this chapter in verse 28 that is the man by the name of Jacob your first father sinned and boy did he <laughs> even his name right means supplanter deceiver schemer and not only does he say there first father sinned, but your mediators have transgressed against me. This is a word that speaks of their teachers, their spokesmen, those who stood in their stead, represented the people like their kings and their priests and their prophets. These leaders, these representatives had transgressed the law of God. What happened with the kings of Judah? Well, they took advantage of their power and authority to do what they wished. What happened with regard to their priests? Well, they started living off the backs of the people rather than caring for the flock to which they were entrusted. They. What happened with their prophets? Well, the prophets began to tell the people what they wanted to hear, right? And so, from their first father to their mediators to the people themselves, all of them, the nation as a whole, had forsaken their God. And therefore, look at verse twenty-eight again. Therefore, you see, here's the word now that justifies God's judgment of that nation. Therefore, He says, their sin and rebellion is the just reason for their condemnation because of their persistent sin. The Lord says, first, I will I will profane the princes of the sanctuary, those mediators who were supposed to represent God, would be left to themselves, would be merely men with earthly power, like Annas and Caiaphas, the rulers of the the high priests uh, in Jesus' day. These people would be left without holy priest or godly king or true prophet. I will profane the princes of your sanctuary, and then the last line of the Lord's judgment I think is the most sobering. And I will deliver Jacob to what? To utter destruction. And Israel to reviling. The word utter destruction, the Hebrew word kerem, C-H-E-R-E-M. We've talked about it before. Because it's a significant word in the Old Testament. And it has to do... With it really has deep roots in the Old Testament law, has to do with something that is completely and irredeemably given over to the Lord. And so from a human perspective, it's banned. So some translations have, he will put Israel under the ban. He will cause them to be utterly destroyed because when something was in this position it was given over to the lord banned for any ordinary person it was cursed for them it was an accursed thing for any human it was holy for the lord for the display of his justice or his mercy it was holy given over to the lord it was sacrifice to god alone unredeemable usually to the destruction of that thing often a destruction in fire this is something that is Harem. and in Joshua chapters six and seven, um, it's used of the first Canaanite city that was encountered as the people of Israel went into the Promised Land. You remember what that city was? The city of they marched around it seven times. City of Jericho. The city of Jericho, the Bible says, was to be devoted to the Lord completely, devoted for destruction. The whole city, everything in it, was to be destroyed and burned up as a sacrifice to God. That's this word, okay? Or the word is used in 1 Samuel chapter 15 of the Amalekites, another of the Canaanite peoples. The Bible says that when you come to these people, he told King Saul they are to be completely destroyed. You don't leave anything left alive. All of this is completely devoted to the Lord. It is a harem. And it ought to be given over to utter destruction. And of course we know that Saul spared the life of some of the animals and the king and was rejected as king of Israel because of that. So this is a very serious thing. The only other time this word is used in the book of Isaiah is back in chapter 34, verse 2, when it is used of all sinful mankind being, quote, devoted to destruction in the final judgment that God will bring on the world someday. So that's the context of this word. And the Lord says, look at this text now. The Lord says, that's what I will do with what? That's what I will do with Israel. Because of her sin and her apostasy, she will be given over to utter destruction in terms of being a nation destroyed like the people of Jericho or the Amalekites. And they were. After the Babylonian captivity, they had no Davidic king to sit upon the throne. And with the closing of the Old Testament, their prophets ceased. And by 70 A.D., its temple was ruined and destroyed, brick from stone from stone, and its priesthood disbanded. And Jesus stood and said, The house of Israel is left desolate. This is the judgment of the Lord upon a people that becomes so hardened against the Lord They have wearied him to death and they're given over to such a a judgment. And that is what makes chapter 44 so amazing and even puzzling. Because after that statement that the Lord is going to give them over to, quote, utter destruction, then... He comes back to the comfort of grace. Look at this in verse 1. And puzzle over this with me, okay? I hope you're feeling it like I felt it. In verse 1, he says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will what? Will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant. Jeshurun, upright one, whom I have chosen. How in the world? Do you move from just saying, I will make Jacob and I will give Jacob over to utter destruction to the very next phrase saying, fear not, O Jacob. And I think the key, the key is which Jacob or Israel is in view. Which Israel or Jacob? There is Israel according to the flesh, as Paul described them. Jacob's natural offspring but then there is on that on the other hand the true Israel and Galatians chapter 3 Paul argues that true Israel is in fact what singular a singular offspring of Abraham a physical son of Jacob so that physical line is is important it's traced down through the through the uh scriptures that Single, solitary seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. And now, now, in union with Jesus Christ through faith, there is a world full of a kind of spiritual offspring, if you will. A new Israel from every tribe and nation and language called by a new name, singing a new song, given and established by a new covenant with a new priesthood and a new sacrifice and a new temple, inhabiting a new Jerusalem. The types and the shadows and the mystery have given way now to gospel reality in the mind's eye of the prophet. And this Israel is made up of a remnant of ethnic Jews founded on the testimony of the apostles of Jesus Christ. But it will encompass people from the ends of the earth. And here is the great gospel hope for that people. Verse 3, I will pour water on the spiritually thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. Now, when is that? What is that? What's going on? You remember that Jesus, our Savior, on the great day of the Feast of Booths, during one of His three years of earthly ministry, He went to the city of Jerusalem on that day when the priests of Israel carried the water from the Pool of Siloam through the water gate and up into the temple, and at the temple at the base of the altar, poured out that water to remind the people of that water that flowed from the rock when they were traveling through The wilderness and Jesus stood up on that day, at that moment with a loud voice, said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You remember that? He is the living water that satisfies the soul, that sustains a person to eternal life. He is that living water that Isaiah sees poured out upon dry and thirsty lands, just like he was that rock in the wilderness that was stricken for his people and out of him flowed life-giving water. And he goes on and he says, Our Savior, when He stood in the temple that day, He said, Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this. Now he was talking about the Spirit, whom those who would believe in Him were to receive. For as yet, John says, the Spirit had not been given, for Jesus had not yet been glorified. It was the glorification of Jesus that would bring about this outpouring of the river of the Spirit. And 40 days after Jesus' death on the Feast of Passover, he ascended into the throne of glory, and 10 days later, as the Jews celebrated another festival, the Feast of Weeks, we call it Pentecost, there was the beginnings of the great outpourings of the Spirit upon the apostles and upon the Jewish converts to Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 8, the Lord's Spirit was poured out in mass upon believing Samaritans. And in chapter 10 of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit was poured out in mass upon the Gentiles, or began to be poured out upon the Gentiles. And so we have right here in verse 3, look at the end of the verse. And I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring. First upon Christ, that singular offspring at his baptism, and then upon all who are in Christ as he says, I will pour out upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. And this one will say, I am the Lord's. I mean, he will call upon the name of the Lord, the very thing that fleshly Israel failed to do in verse 22. They did not call upon me. This one will call and say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob which implies that he's not naturally a son of Israel, but united to the people of God. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, I am the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And so in Abraham, all of the families of the earth are blessed. As Paul says in Romans, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So on the one hand, The Lord can say in chapter 43, verse 28, that Israel will be given over to utter destruction. And on the other hand, he can say, Israel will spring up like willows by flowing streams. You can think of it this way. Israel was a rebellious nation that by the blade of God's judgment was cut down like a tree to the stump. But out of that stump, a new little shoot began to spring forth the Christ. And that shoot grew into a great tree and the wild branches of all of the Gentile nations were grafted into that great tree. And God is able even to graft back in the natural branches, those that were cut off when they turn in repentance to their Messiah. Or You can think of it like this a seed going into the ground to die. And three days later, new life springs up from that seed. That land is a spiritually dry land. But God would pour water out upon that desert, and that river of God would flow from his throne out onto that desert and grow deeper and deeper the further that river goes, even though no tributaries are feeding it at all and those seedling that little seedling will grow by that river and reproduce and many willows spring up along its banks drinking in the river of God's spirit and like a tree planted by the rivers of water he will bring forth his fruit in his season and the leaves will be for the healing of the nations this is the gospel isaiah foresees the coming of the savior and the global ingathering of the people of God, not only from the Jews, but also from among the nations. And so Isaiah says to the remnant of those who believed among the people, in the face of the prediction of natural national annihilation, he's able to say to them, yet fear not. Fear not. A new thing is coming. A messianic hope. The age of the Spirit. Will dawn by the grace of God. Now, in closing, I think there are at least three important things that we ought to take away from this. And the first is that God is absolutely faithful to fulfill his promises, both his promises of judgment and his promises of mercy. And it's possible that there is someone who is religious who even assumes that they are a part of the community of God's grace, but that person so gives himself to sin, that worship becomes a burden, he tries the patience of God to where the Lord says, finally, I will deliver him over to utter destruction. And maybe he gives them over to a grave chastening that will in fact be Literally life altering for that person. Or maybe even that person is given over to eternal destruction because he never truly was the Lord's. And that is a fearful thing and something that we all, we all ought to give serious and earnest thought about. But if you will turn back to the Lord, you right now, today, while it is yet today, will not harden your heart, but seek after the Lord. You know what you will find? Grace that is greater than all your sin. I think, secondly, there is a message here for those of us who are saved, and that is that God does not show us grace because of our deservedness, but for His. His namesake for His own name because of who He is. And so we're reminded when we're tempted to become self-righteous and to think of ourselves in terms of our own goodness and uprightness, To we'll be reminded that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That while we sought Him not, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ for His own glory. And I think that's the deepest comfort. I really do. That God saves people not because of what's in themselves, but because of His own name. I think that's the greatest comfort because I am assured by that that His name is at stake in my salvation. That He will do everything that it's going to take to bring every one of his true children all the way home. That what he begins, he will continue until the day of Jesus Christ. That he will guard his glory. That he will pursue and chasten and preserve for his own name's sake. Then I think thirdly and finally that we are reminded from this text that all of God's promises, and we've been dealing with promises here, right? Promises of grace, okay? Promises of mercy in the context of national judgment. All of God's promises of grace find their yes and amen in Christ Jesus. In Christ. All of God's promises all boil down to this one thing. All of the scope of His grace really has us all narrowing down until we're all looking in one singular place. And that is to the person of Jesus Christ. He is the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Jacob, the son of David. He is the chosen one of God. He is the obedient, faithful servant where we have been so unfaithful. He is is our wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And in Him, both judgment and mercy met together. You want to know the place where these two polarities of God's nature come together more than anywhere else in the entire history of the world is on the cross of Calvary. For there we see the epitome of the judgment of God. But we also see the epitome of His mercy. Friends, your life is hid with Christ. Amen? In Christ alone, you have died and your life is hidden with Him. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but a new creation. In Christ Jesus. Our hope is in Christ alone. Friend, run to Christ. Hold on to Christ. Persevere in Christ. Trust Him. Submit to Him. Believe Him. Follow Him. Christ alone is our hope. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, All is mine, yet not I but through Christ in me. All glory to our Savior. Amen. Lift your eyes to Him right now while we pray. All glory to You, Lord Jesus. Father, please use this word to strengthen, to sweeten, and to warn and save those who are in danger of being lost. In Christ Jesus. Amen.